Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. AI experts and public figures sign an urgent letter about deep fake dangers. A U.S. drone is shot down by a Houthi missile. At the ICJ, the U.S. says Israel shouldn't be ordered to leave Palestinian territory. Farmers in India plan to resume their protests. Estonia detains 10 Russians in an alleged sabotage plot. Donald Trump compares his legal issues to Navalny's death. Hunter Biden claims Alexander Smirnov's claims collapsed a DOJ plea deal. Alabama Supreme Court rules that frozen embryos can be defined as children. The Biden administration announces 150,000 new borrowers will receive student loan relief. And a notorious international cyber gang is disrupted. In our top story, experts and public figures sign a letter for AI deepfake regulation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Open Letter, PR Newswire, Reuters, and Silicon UK. Over 300 people, including artificial intelligence, AI technology, digital ethics, and child safety experts, as well as celebrities and academics, have signed an open letter calling on governments to regulate AI deepfakes. Deepfakes are AI-generated content that fabricates human voices, images, and videos to the extent that the average person wouldn't reasonably be able to tell if it's real or fake. The letter, whose signatories include AI pioneer Joshua Bengio, Harvard psychology professor Steven Pinker, two former Estonian presidents, and Google researchers includes calls for criminalizing deepfake child pornography and mandating that AI firms prevent its creation. The letter also demands criminal punishment for anyone wittingly facilitating the spread of dangerous deepfakes. The lead author, UC Berkeley AI researcher Andrew Critch, called deepfakes a, quote, huge threat to human society, with others claiming 98% of deepfake victims are female. Part of the solution, according to the letter, would be for technology and media companies to build tools for authenticating imagery, such as digital seals with cryptographic signatures. This follows several recent high-profile deepfake scandals, including a fake video of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky calling on Ukrainians to lay down their weapons, as well as videos of both former U.S. Presidents Donald Trump and Barack Obama. All right, thanks for that big update, Eric. We have a narrative A from Tortoise. There are many dangers emerging as a result of AI deepfakes, the most prominent being sexually explicit content, which grew by 400% from 2022 to 2023. Not only this, but malicious actors are also using this technology to create fake videos of politicians and artificially sway political opinions across the world. The world's leading AI experts, from independent academics to tech executives developing AI, are right and sounding the alarm on the incoming threats we face if governments don't take measures to strongly regulate deepfakes. Narrative B, coming from MIT Co-Creation Studio. While there are deepfakes that should absolutely be banned, especially pornography, this technology isn't only used for nefarious purposes, and any infringement on free speech must be carefully avoided. For instance, deepfakes provide a promising new tool in a long line of satirical techniques that have been used throughout history to maintain a balance of power between rulers and those they rule. Regulation should be judiciously and carefully curated to prevent the dark aspects of deepfakes, while also allowing people to critique and even mock the powers that be. 
And there's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 4% chance that the U.S. will restrict deepfake technology use to approved applications before 2025. The Pentagon reports the Houthis shot down a U.S. Reaper drone. Here are the facts as agreed upon by First Post, Stars and Stripes, Fox News, Business Insider, CNBC, and ABC News. The Pentagon confirmed Tuesday that a military MQ-9 drone flying off the Yemeni coast on Monday was shot down by the Iran-aligned Houthis and crashed into the Red Sea as tensions in the region continue to escalate amid the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. The drone was downed by a surface-to-air missile following more sophisticated operations by the Houthis over the weekend. Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh said. She added that an investigation into the recovery of the drone is underway. The Houthis last downed an MQ-9 drone in November when it was reportedly flying over international airspace off Yemen's coast. In June 2019, the rebels are also said to have shot down a drone used for intelligence gathering and precision strikes. The latest downing came as the Houthis continued their attacks Monday, reportedly firing two anti-ship ballistic missiles and a U.S.-owned Greek-flagged grain carrier. Sustaining minor damage, the vessel continued its journey to aid in Yemen, the U.S. military said. Also on Monday, Yemeni militants launched an attack that heavily damaged a British-owned Belize-flagged cargo ship. The U.S. said that the vessel was hit by two anti-ship ballistic missiles fired from Houthi-controlled areas in Yemen. On Sunday, the U.S. announced that it had carried out five self-defense strikes targeting drones and missiles possessed by the Houthis. According to the U.S. military, one attack targeted the first monitored deployment of an unmanned underwater vehicle by the Houthis. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Stars and Stripes. The Houthis have carried out another unprovoked attack, but it's not comparable to the damage Yemeni terrorists have inflicted on international shipping in the Red Sea. So the U.S. will continue operating in the area to protect the freedom of navigation and uphold the rule of law. The U.S. is taking out Houthi drones every day, and its strikes will continue until these terrorists are defeated and cease operations. And we have an establishment-critical narrative from Al-Mayadeen. This proves that U.S.-led strikes against the Houthis are failing to deter their attacks and instead are boosting the Houthis' standing in the Arab world. The U.S. is running out of options against the Houthis' asymmetric tactics, which have been well-tested by the last decade of war in Yemen. The best way to avoid expanding this conflict is a comprehensive ceasefire in Gaza. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 13% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before January 1st, 2025. According to the ICJ, the U.S. says Israel shouldn't be ordered to leave Palestinian territory. The facts are agreed upon by the Washington Post, Al Jazeera, Jerusalem Post, the Times of Israel, World Food Program USA, and Associated Press. The U.S. argued at the International Court of Justice, or ICJ, on Wednesday that Israel should not be ordered to withdraw from Palestinian territories it captured in the 1967 Arab-Israeli War without security guarantees that take into account, quote, Israel's very real security needs. Several countries, including South Africa and Saudi Arabia, have called for Israel to withdraw from the West Bank and Gaza with the ICJ being asked to review Israel's occupation, settlement, and annexation to include its adoption of related discriminatory legislation and measures. Meanwhile, Israel's Knesset decided to oppose any attempt to unilaterally impose a Palestinian state on Israel, with 99 votes in support of the motion in the 120-seat body. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that international pressure endangered Israel and prevented peace. 
In Gaza, intense fighting flared in the enclaves north, a region in which the Israeli military previously said it had completed operations. The military issued evacuation orders for two neighborhoods south of Gaza City on Tuesday, with reports of heavy fighting with airstrikes. The UN World Food Program, or WFP, announced on Tuesday that it will pause deliveries of food aid to northern Gaza citing unsafe conditions for its employees and, quote, the collapse of civil order in the area. The agency warned that northern Gaza could see mass famine by May if conditions don't improve decisively. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 29,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. All right, thanks, Eric, for that update on the Middle East. We have a pro-establishment narrative from CBS. Israel must be able to defend itself from terrorist attacks, whether from Gaza or elsewhere. And the U.S. is committed to preventing malicious actors from minimizing Israel's legitimate security concerns. However, Netanyahu is going too far with the war in Gaza, and he must be willing to follow through on his promises and compromise as needed, so that another extended truce can take effect, which will hopefully lead to a more permanent resolution to this conflict. The Biden administration is losing its patience with Netanyahu's intransigence. The pro-Israel narrative comes from Jerusalem Post. The ICJ has no authority over Israel and is cynically accusing the country of committing crimes akin to those committed by dictators like Vladimir Putin, which is both delusional and illegitimate. A small fraction of Israeli soldiers, of course, likely have committed crimes, but Israel justly prosecutes them. Unlike the myriad of brutal autocracies one may find across the Middle East, it's simply absurd to assume that Israel, a democratic state, would be guilty of the systematic war crimes it is accused of as it fights terrorism. Middle East Eye counters with a pro-Palestine narrative. Israeli forces are committing daily massacres in the Gaza Strip, demonstrating the urgency with which the international community must apply more pressure on Israel and the U.S. to accept a permanent ceasefire and end this brutal campaign. The U.S. is effectively isolating itself from its Arab partners and the rest of the world by diverging from even its Western allies in terms of its support for Israel's slaughter. To get the hostages back, Israel must withdraw from Gaza and end the bloodshed. The Metaculous Prediction community is feeling left out, so they're going to share their nerd narrative with us. They say there's a 4% chance that Hamas will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. India's farmer protests to resume after failed talks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Radio Free International, The Deccan Herald, Washington Post, Barron's, and BBC News. Following failed talks over crop prices, Indian farmers have announced the resumption of their march to Delhi, saying the guaranteed floor prices offered by the government for pulses, maize, and cotton were not in their interest. The protesters, whose march was stopped by the police last week, won a minimum support price on all crops. They have used kites and slingshots to deflect tear gas dropping drones and are prepared to use bulldozers against barricades. The protesters settled in the border town of Shambu between the Punjab and Haryana states during the talks, which saw the government offer a five-year contract for MSPs on certain crops. Already a 21-year-old protester was killed during the march, and others were injured in clashes as the police allegedly fired rubber bullets. The farmers are threatening to push through barricades, concrete blocks, and metal spikes, and may use protective goggles against tear gas. The police said they would prosecute anyone providing the protesters with excavators. 
Four days' worth of talks have failed, while the farmers are also seeking pensions and the implementation of the 2013 Land Acquisition Act. They also want all police cases related to their 2021 protest dropped. Scott, thanks for the facts. The first spin is a right narrative coming from Swarajia. MSP law is not the solution, since supply and demand vary through seasons. Once the demand is met through buying based on MSP, the rest of the crop can be rendered useless. Farmers will wind up bearing the brunt since those buying at prices lower than MSP amid weak demand could be punished by law. And the left narrative spin comes from The Wire. The BJP must implement the cost-effective and fair MSPs that farmers deserve. The truth is that farmers would only produce enough to meet supply and thus only profit from MSP. What the government actually wants is to keep prices low so that labor costs remain low to benefit business elites. If the BJP offered workers livable wages, these protests would go away. Metaculus has a nerd narrative saying there's an 85% chance that the BJP will form the government after the next Indian general election in 2024. I guess this is the flip side to those farmers uh, subsidies that folks get in America. Sometimes you hear about, you know, pork farmers are being paid to destroy some of their crop or or whatever. But, you know, you can't have farmers stop making food. There's an economic Sudoku is what I would call it. Ten Russians are being held in an alleged sabotage plot in Estonia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Radio Free Europe, ABC News, DW, MSN, and Associated Press. On Tuesday, the Estonian Internal Security Service announced the arrest of ten individuals for allegedly coordinating a, quote, hybrid operation in the country on behalf of Russia's special services. Estonian officials alleged that the goal was to create tension and spread fear in Estonian society. The suspects who were detained between December and February include those previously accused of breaking the car windows of the interior minister and a journalist in December. Last week, Russia placed Estonia's Prime Minister Kaja Kalas on its wanted list after she attempted to remove Soviet-era World War II monuments from the country. The suspects allegedly worked in a number of capacities in Estonia at the request of their Russian handlers. The criminal inquiry indicated that some individuals sought to obtain intelligence, while others planned and executed assaults. According to Estonian Security Service Chief Margo Paulusen, some of the suspects are thought to have vandalized undisclosed memorials and were recruited via social media. The Security Service had declined to provide further details as the inquiry is still ongoing. Thanks, Eric. We have an anti-Russia narrative from ERR. The Kremlin is employing its entire arsenal of subversive activities against the Baltic countries. This follows the intimidation of Prime Minister Kallas and several other politicians who were added to Russia's wanted list last week. It's a tried and true strategy of instilling fear, as anyone who has ever lived under Russian rule can attest. This has just demonstrated that Estonia is correctly supporting Ukraine and strengthening European defenses despite Moscow's intention to silence critics. The pro-Russian narrative comes from Politico. The security services of Estonia are working around the clock to find a Russian connection to any crime there, even when there is no crime to be found. Russian President Vladimir Putin has often stated that Moscow has no geopolitical interest in attacking a NATO member. This, of course, includes Estonia and the other two Baltic nations. It's completely untrue to say that the Kremlin has any territorial interests in the Baltics. There's simply no rationale or desire for that from the Kremlin's perspective. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, a 2% chance that Russia will annex any part of any Baltic country by 2035. Trump again compares his legal troubles to Navalny's death. Here are the facts on this story as agreed upon by Fox News, Newsweek, The Independent, and the Associated Press. 
Former U.S. President Donald Trump on Tuesday during a pre-taped town hall with Fox News Channel host Laura Ingram called his four criminal indictments a form of Navalny. Trump began his response to a question about Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader who was found dead in a remote Arctic prison last week, by calling Navalny's death a horrible thing. But then he drew the comparison between himself and Navalny. Trump went on to say that what happened to Navalny is happening in our country, too, and that the U.S. is turning into a communist country in many ways. In addition to the four criminal indictments, Trump last week in New York was ordered to pay $355 million in fines as part of a fraud judgment against him and his business. He previously was ordered to pay $83.3 million in the sexual assault and defamation of magazine writer E. Jean Carroll. Trump's comments Tuesday follow a Monday social media post in which he said Navalny's death made him more and more aware that crooked, radical left politicians, prosecutors, and judges are leading the U.S. down a path to destruction. Although the Kremlin denies that Russian President Vladimir Putin was involved in Navalny's death, several Western leaders, including U.S. President Joe Biden, have implicated the Russian leader. Thanks, Scott, for the facts. The first spin is a pro-Trump narrative coming from Town Hall. Anti-Trump forces in the U.S. have been weaponizing the justice system against the former president ever since he won the 2016 election. And their lawfare has gone beyond Trump to deliver harsh sentences for nonviolent acts to his allies and supporters. If Biden has his way, Trump will be imprisoned until he dies, just like Navalny. And we have an anti-Trump narrative from CNN. Trump's audacity in comparing his plight to that of Navalny, who returned to Russia knowing the odds were he would end up a martyr, is horrifying. Unlike Navalny, Trump has been granted all the constitutional privileges and safeguards of the justice system. If anything, Trump and his dictatorial tendencies compare favorably to Putin's authoritarianism. Metaculus's nerd narrative says there's a 45% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. Hey, I was going to ask you, speaking of Trump, how do you like those new Trump shoes you ordered? I'm not going to wear them. Those, those are for the wall. You know, I don't know. I don't, those are staying sealed. You know, those are... Uh, Special occasion only. It's a little thing called an investment. You understand? (laughs) Hunter Biden claims Smirnoff collapsed the DOJ plea deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the U.S. District Court of Delaware, the United States Department of Justice, and the Associated Press. Hunter Biden's team submitted a court filing Tuesday criticizing special counsel David Weiss for confusing images of sawdust for cocaine while also alleging that the ridiculous claims of former FBI informant Alexander Smirnoff collapsed a plea deal between Hunter and the DOJ. Hunter Biden's comments come within a nine-count federal indictment overseen by special counsel Weiss, where the son of President Joe Biden is accused of avoiding paying $1.4 million of owed federal taxes between 2016 and 2019. He also faces three charges within a separate federal indictment overseen by Weiss, accusing Biden of illegally acquiring a firearm, providing false statements during its acquisition, and possessing a firearm while being an unlawful user and addicted to prohibited substances. Within the document submitted in support of a motion to compel discovery, Hunter Biden's team compares, quote, mistaking sawdust to cocaine to a storyline from one of the 1980s Police Academy comedies, describing the hyperbolic and sensational claim as reckless. It further alleged that farcical tales of former FBI informant Alexander Smirnoff had infected special counsel Weiss's decision-making when abandoning his plea deal agreements with Hunter concerning both indictments, as well as informing the probe by the House GOP. 
Last week, the DOJ charged Smirnoff with inventing a bribery scheme involving the president and his son, accusing the defendant of falsely claiming to the FBI in 2020 that Ukrainian energy company Burisma had paid the two Bidens a total of $10 million around 2015-2016. MSNBC brings us a Democratic narrative spin. The news of Smirnov's indictment is a further damning blow to congressional Republicans who continue to lead a witch hunt against the Biden family. It's ironically only because of the incessant nature of the GOP's reckless attack on Joe and Hunter Biden that Smirnov has been charged. The reality of Smirnov's lies is yet another shadow upon an embarrassing year for a desperate Republican Party. The Republicans have a narrative and it's courtesy of The Federalist. Hunter Biden's team is using an unintentional mistake in the lies of a previously trusted informant to undermine America's legal system. Yet reality remains the same. Hunter Biden was ready to admit guilt when offered a plea deal concerning his tax evasion, and his laptop contains a plethora of damning evidence of drug use while possessing a firearm. These events by no means prove any innocence, and accusations of corruption within the Biden family remain substantial. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 20% chance that Joe Biden will be impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives. The Alabama Supreme Court rules that frozen embryos are children. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Washington Post, Fox 7, Austin, Texas, Associated Press, and NPR Online News. Frozen embryos can be classified as children, the Alabama Supreme Court has ruled, allowing three couples to sue a fertility clinic where their frozen embryos were allegedly destroyed by accident in 2020. The plaintiffs had paid to keep their embryos, created through in vitro fertilization, frozen at a medical center. However, a patient who had entered the storage facility and removed several embryos dropped them on the floor, leading to their death. The all-Republican court referenced the Alabama Constitution's anti-abortion language in its majority ruling that embryos are extra-uterine children, i.e. children grown outside of the uterus, and the bereaved parents can sue the clinic under Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act. Friday's judgment afforded the fertilized eggs the same protection as children, and overruled the lower court's decision, which had dismissed the three-couple suit, stating that the frozen embryos could not meet the definition of a child. The ruling received national attention, with White House officials framing the ruling in the context of a post-Roe v. Wade environment. Thanks, Scott. The first spin is a right narrative coming from Fox 7 Austin. The Alabama Supreme Court has read the Constitution's wrongful death statute broadly and ensured the comprehensive protection of the rights of unborn children by placing them under the state's responsibility. They have reaffirmed their belief in the sanctity of life grounded in traditional values. The Washington Post counters with a left narrative. This ruling is dangerously theocratic and is now looming over millions of couples looking to become parents through in vitro fertilization. The invocation of personhood right to embryos prioritizes the unborn over biological parents, which is illogical. Even the process of natural reproduction often witnesses embryo loss, making this a bad faith ruling all around. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 37% chance that Republicans will support embryo selection for intelligence more than Democrats. Now, Eric, usually when we have no comment on a story, we just don't comment. We move on. But I would like to go on record saying that I have no comment on this story. How about you? You know what? I'll join you. The Biden administration cancels $1.2 billion in student debt for 153,000 borrowers. The facts are agreed upon by CNBC, NPR Online News, CNN, the White House, ABC News, and NBC. 
The Biden administration on Wednesday announced its plans to forgive $1.2 billion in student loan debt for nearly 153,000 borrowers under its Saving on a Valuable Education or SAVE plan. People enrolled in the SAVE plan who borrowed $12,000 or less and have been paying their loans for at least 10 years qualified for loan forgiveness. Those who had their debts canceled received an email from the administration informing them that they essentially were debt-free. The congratulatory emails came from Biden, who's touting debt cancellation as part of his re-election pitch to younger voters. After the Supreme Court blocked its broad loan forgiveness plan, Biden launched SAVE in August to give relief after the COVID-related payment pause ended. The White House says that eligible borrowers will receive debt relief for every $1,000 they took out above the $12,000 threshold for every additional year of payments. For example, someone who borrowed $14,000 will receive full relief if he or she has been making payments for 12 years. Biden initially hoped for a blanket debt cancellation of $10,000 to $20,000 per borrower, but his administration has managed to provide debt relief for nearly 3.9 million people. Around 7.5 million are enrolled in the SAVE plan, which Biden is expected to note in a campaign speech in Los Angeles on Wednesday. 30 million are eligible for SAVE. And the White House says that debt relief is expected to begin shortly, ahead of the July expectation. The Department of Education will directly contact eligible borrowers who are not enrolled in the SAVE plan. Thanks, Eric. Beth and Moorcraft brings us the Democratic narrative spin. After the conservative Supreme Court struck down President Joe Biden's comprehensive loan forgiveness plan, the administration has worked to bring desperately needed relief to as many borrowers as possible. Under the SAVE plan, the Biden administration has provided relief for nearly 4 million borrowers, including those who are public servants or are struggling financially. Biden is committed to helping borrowers navigate their student loans and will continue to fight for all people looking to repay their debts. Follow that with a Republican narrative from Daily Wire. Joe Biden isn't even trying to hide the fact that he is essentially bribing millions of Americans into voting for him by canceling their student loan debt. Everyone knows that debt doesn't just disappear, and Biden is shamelessly using taxpayer funds to aid his flailing re-election bid. Biden's email on Wednesday gives the game away, and he should be working to help all American workers instead of trying to buy the votes of a certain group who can't pay the loans they took out. All right, Eric, we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that the U.S. student loan debt bubble will pop by September 2037. The U.K. leads an operation to disrupt a lockbit cyber gang. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Associated Press, NBC, Bloomberg, the United States Department of Justice, the National Crime Agency, and BBC News. It was revealed Monday that the U.K.'s National Crime Agency, or NCA, has led an operation to disrupt Lockbit, which is widely considered the world's largest criminal ransomware group. The FBI, Europol, and other countries also contributed to the long-running operation. NCA released a statement Tuesday saying it took control of Lockbit's primary administrative environment, which had allowed its affiliates to execute attacks, and its public-facing leak site on the dark web. The site now shows information exposing Lockbit's criminal operations. The U.S. Department of Justice also released a statement saying the joint international law enforcement effort seized multiple websites Lockbit used to connect affiliates to its infrastructure. The takedown could enable hundreds of victims to restore systems that were attacked. Europol says the two Lockbit actors were arrested and authorities issued three international warrants and two indictments. While the group hasn't been dismantled, authorities believe a major blow has been dealt to Lockbit's reputation and fear has been stoked in its affiliates. 
Operating since 2019, LockBit has been the world's most prolific ransomware gang by volume, accounting for 23% of last year's nearly 4,000 global ransomware attacks. The syndicate has stolen $120 million from thousands of victims and uses stolen information to extort its victims. Cybercriminals at large extorted $1 billion from victims last year, and attacks threaten hospitals, schools, businesses, and police departments. Since most hackers live in Russia, it's difficult for other countries to prosecute criminals and terminate syndicates. Thanks, Scott, for the facts. The first spin's a pro-establishment narrative coming from Verge. This is a momentous victory over Lockbit that will punish the world's largest ransomware gang and send a message to cyber criminals at large. The long-running operation involved building sophisticated systems that can beat hackers at their own game, an approach that can serve as a roadmap for dealing with future ransomware syndicates. And SC Media brings us an establishment-critical narrative. International law enforcement agencies deserve kudos for this operation, but the disruption is unlikely to yield massive changes in the world of cybersecurity. Due to syndicates' decentralized nature and the fact that most hackers reside in Russia, it's virtually impossible to truly dismantle Lockbit. And other ransomware gangs are waiting in the wings to fill the void. Law enforcement can't be complacent. The final nerd narrative says there's a 15% chance that a major cyber attack, virus, worm, etc. that uses autonomously self-replicating LLMs in some important way will occur before January 1st, 2025. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news. You can download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Verity Podcast.